I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until all was leavened. This morning, we come to two other parables of the seven kingdom parables that the Lord Jesus spoke there uh, in that period of time when he was in Capernaum. And what these parables teach us is how his kingdom is progressively unfolded in this world. And these parables, these seven parables, teach us a number of crucial truths about the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. First of all, we see in the parable of the sower and the soils, the varied responses of different kinds of hearers to the preaching of the word of the kingdom. And we are taught that our heart condition determines our response to gospel preaching. Some are hard-hearted, some are very shallow, they receive the word excitedly, others receive the word and it seems that they're Christians also, but the things of this world entangle the word, choke it out, they bear no fruit, and some seed is planted in good soil that bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then we see the mixed nature of the kingdom of God in the world. We see true and false professing Christians living side by side in God's kingdom until the end. And then we see the future separation of the true and false in the kingdom of God at the end. And we see this in the parable of the wheat and tares in the parable of the dragnet. We began opening up the parable of the wheat and tares in a previous message, and we're going to come back to that and And consider that along with the parable of the dragnet, God willing, next time. And then we see the expansive influence of the word of the kingdom as it goes out in the world. And we see this displayed in the parables before us this morning. The parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven. And then we consider the exceeding preciousness of the word of the kingdom in future messages. And these are taught in the parables of the hidden treasure and the expensive pearl. Our Lord's parables, you see, revealed divine mysteries, facts about God's kingdom that before were not known. They were hinted at, but they were never explained. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. 
All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And that, par that prophecy is being fulfilled in Jesus' exposition of the kingdom of God teaching in parables. And notice further, though Christ preached these kingdom parables to all hearers, all that would, that would come about and, and listen, he enabled only his chosen ones to understand them, at times even giving them further instruction. But to Jesus' unbelieving hearers, his parables were actually a sign of judgment because they would not receive the truth as it was plainly taught. Look at verses 11 through 17. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Brethren, how crucial it is. I say this to all of us. How crucial it is for us to have hearing Years. We go to the doctor when we have ear problems. We might get wax removed, or if our hearing starts to fade, we get hearing aids. Hearing is very important in life, is it not? How much more hearing the words of eternal life? We need ears to hear. And Jesus underscores this fact by exhorting us, in verses 9 and 43, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, as we approach our study this morning of Jesus' parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, understand that the hearers, to the hearers, what he is teaching them has immediate relevance, especially to the apostles and even to us. You see, the parables in particular address such things as the defective understanding about the coming day of judgment. As I stated in a previous message, John the Baptist 
had taught that when the Messiah would come, the axe would be laid already at the root of the trees. And they were expecting that God's judgment was soon to come because Messiah was here. But that was not to be the case. And Jesus teaches these parables that the kingdom is going to come and it's going to advance over a long period of time. And he also addresses discouragement over the unreceptiveness of many of his hearers. In the parable of the sower and the soils, there were three that did not receive the word so as to be saved. There were only a few good ground hearers, and they were seeing this. They couldn't understand, very likely, why others weren't embracing the gospel as they were. And furthermore, it addresses the disciples' dismay at the number of false professing Christians in the parable of the tares that would be populating the kingdom of God. Indeed, amongst the college of the apostles, there was an apostate apostle in the person of Judas Iscariot. Now, as we come to consider our study this morning of the parables of of the of the of the leaven and of the mustard seed, we're going to consider two two headings. First of all, we're going to look at the expanding influence of God's kingdom throughout the world in the parable of the mustard seed, and then we're going to consider the permeating influence of God's kingdom in the world in the parable of the leaven. So let us consider then the expanding influence of God's kingdom throughout the world in the parable of the mustard seed. Look again at verses 31 and 32. And he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than than all other seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, as we consider the parable of the mustard seed, we're going to look at two points, as we will, in the parable of the leaven. First of all, an explanation of the symbols in the parable. You see, only as we properly identify the symbols in this parable will we rightly understand the teaching of the parable. If we go wrong in our understanding of the symbols, we'll be wrong in our understanding of the meaning of the parable. So let's look at at these symbols. First of all, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven we've seen in the past broadly defined is God's sovereign rule over all the world, over all men, saved and lost. But narrowly defined, the kingdom of heaven is God's gracious rule in the hearts of men as it is expanded throughout the world. These parables illustrate various aspects of God's gracious kingdom as it expands in the world to the end of the age. And the mustard seed, what is the mustard seed? It's key to understanding. First of all, note its identity, the identity of the mustard seed. It's not the word of the kingdom as in the parable of the sower and the soils, nor is it individual Christians as in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The mustard seed here is the beginning of God's kingdom in the world. 
That's its identity. Notice its size. Jesus calls it the, the smallest of the seeds. Now understand here that some unbelievers come to this text and they say, well, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. But Issa was the small, smallest of the seeds, of, at least among the very smaller of the seeds in the area of Palestine. You know, the, the rabbis would speak about something as being very small. They would say, small as a mustard seed. And Jesus is using that same imagery here. It's small. Initially, it's tiny. The kingdom of God is tiny like a mustard seed. It's apparently insignificant. It's almost imperceptible in its beginnings, but it possesses latent power. It's capable of great growth. And so Jesus speaks even of the small faith and its huge potential. He uses this imagery of the mustard seed in Luke 17 and verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in uh, uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We have to say, many of us, that we hardly have the faith of a mustard seed. But Jesus says, even small faith can do great things. Proportionately, as we consider its size, it's small compared to the size of the tree that it produces. It's very tiny, and then it grows, and it fills the earth. And we see its size eventually. One day it will cover the entire world, pole to pole and shore to shore. The kingdom of God will grow. Notice, thirdly, the sower. The sower, he's properly identified with the sower in the parable of the wheat and the tares, who in that parable, he sows Christians in his kingdom He's also the sower in the parable of the soils who plants the word of the kingdom in the hearts of men. And who is this sower? Well, he's identified for us in verse 37. It's Jesus, the son of man. Initially, the sower is Jesus. And then the apostles after him, followed by pastors and ordinary Christians down to the end of the age, all who sow the word of the kingdom. What is this field? What does that stand for? Well, we know that this, this field is the world. Christ's kingdom is in the parable of the wheat and the tares. His field is the entire world. His field speaks of the kingdom of grace expanding into the kingdom of this world. And then the tree that comes from the seed. What is that? Well, this underscores the wide expanse of the kingdom beginning as but a very small seed, and it grows and it grows and it fills the world. What are the birds of the air that come and nest in his branches? Well, they're men, women, they're children who are brought under the gracious sway of the king. They're enrolled as citizens in his kingdom. They're like birds. They, they enter the kingdom of God seeking shelter and sustenance that's provided for them by the benevolent ruler of the kingdom. They unite with others like themselves under his gracious rule like birds. They nest in the boughs and they fatten themselves on the tree's nutritious seeds. They're happily chirping and flitting about like a bunch of sparrows in a bush. They've come home, you see. 
in the kingdom of God. So that briefly is an explanation of the symbols of the parable. Let us consider now the historical fulfillment of the parable. Now let me say right away that Jesus' kingdom parables strictly are not prophecies, yet many not only picture but also anticipate the advancement of Christ's gracious reign throughout the world down to the end of the age. In that case, there is a prophetic element in these parables. In the case of this parable, it foresees the gathering of a countless host of redeemed sinners that flee for safety and for camaraderie and for sustenance into God's gracious kingdom. If you're a Christian, God has enabled you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you've entered into the kingdom of God and you've become a member of a church of Jesus Christ. Now we immediately think of Christ's promise in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will build my church. And though God's kingdom and Christ's church are not strictly synonymous, they do overlap. They overlap at the point of conversion, where in the new birth, sinners are given eyes to see the kingdom of God. Those who experience the new birth are enrolled as citizens in the kingdom and as members of the kingdom of grace. They are united with others in this spiritual kingdom. They're like the birds that land and nest with others in that great and growing bush. They enter into the churches of Jesus Christ. And this is assumed in our Lord's great commission. Before ascending to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles with what we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, what Jesus is saying there is you go out and you spread the good seed. You make disciples and you baptize them. And then you teach them all things that I have commanded and brethren, where does that take place? The teaching of baptized disciples takes place in local churches of Jesus Christ. The disciples are made, they are baptized, and they are taught, and they are organized into societies that we call local churches. So God's kingdom expands. The mustard seed continues to grow as disciples are made and formed into local churches, which in turn extend Christ's gracious rule in the world. They go out and they teach others, you see. The success of the early church in bringing the gospel to a lost world is a powerful testimony to the mustard seed growth of Christ's kingdom. Remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, what did Jesus tell the disciples? You're to go first to Jerusalem and then to, to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. 
like a stone tossed into a pond. Its rings are to go ever outward into the world as they bring the gospel. And that's what we see. That's the outline for the book of Acts. First of all, we see the, the seed going forth in, in Jerusalem. Sinners are saved. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost are added to the 120. And then it goes out into Judea, the wider area of Israel. And then it goes north into Samaria, and sinners are saved there. And then it goes to the far port, ports, portions of the world. Cornelius, a Gentile, is saved, picturing the gospel going forth unto all of the lost peoples of the world. And it continues to spread. In fact, the spread of the gospel in subsequent centuries in ever-widening circles around the globe, then gaining momentum through the concentrated and organized missionary enterprise of the late 18th century down to today, the, the mustard seed tree continues to grow. And though vigorously opposed and viciously oppressed, both by outright pagans and by false brethren, the gracious gospel influence that originated as a small seed from a handful of disciples will one day fill the earth. Habakkuk speaks for all the prophets who foresaw the climactic growth of the mustard seed. We read in Habakkuk 2 in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're not engaged in a losing but a winning enterprise, brethren. We need to remember that as we see darkness gathering all about us, that the church is the light of the world. It's, it's a light that's to be put on a lampstand. It's to be a city set upon a hill. Darkness will not overcome it. The light shall go forth, and all those for whom Jesus died shall be brought to light and life in him. Think about the missionary enterprise in the world. You have William Carey, who's the father of, of modern missions, taking the gospel to the Far East India. Hudson Taylor, William Burns in China. Adoniram Judson to Burma. The effect of his preaching and teaching is still going forward there. David Livingston in Africa. Even down to our own day in, in the lifetimes of some of us, Jim Elliott, who lost his life witnessing to Indians in Ecuador and those same Indians that killed him have now embraced Jesus Christ and they're taking the gospel to other tribes throughout the area. And it's still going on. Well, brethren, thousands of unsung heroes are taking gospel far and wide, sacrificing comfort and convenience and sometimes their own lives to bring the mustard seed gospel to those who are dead in trespasses and sins and without hope and without Christ in this world. In response, the heavenly host continually praises the enthroned Savior for the expansive growth of his gracious kingdom, a kingdom that's been purchased by his blood, a kingdom of priests who will yet reign upon the earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, 
to the, the Christ that had entered glory and had taken the scroll and broken its seals. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We must not lose sight of these glorious realities of promised kingdom dominance. Now we'll ponder the parable's practical implications after we consider our Lord's near twin parable, that is the parable of the leaven. So notice secondly, the permeating influence of God's kingdom in the world. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Now again, let us consider an explanation of the symbols of the parable before we consider its spiritual fulfillment. Now, if Jesus' parable of the mustard seed emphasizes the expansive outward development and growth of his kingdom, his parable of the leaven underscores its intensive inward growth, especially in the hearts of those who have been subdued by his grace and enrolled as citizens of his kingdom. And consider with me then the meaning of Jesus' symbols here. First of all, the kingdom of heaven. We've seen that before. All of the world is God's kingdom, but he has a spiritual kingdom within a kingdom, and that is his own people, and they go outward into the kingdom of this world and make disciples. But Mr. Barnes, I believe, correctly distinguishes between the thrust of the two parables, between the outward observable influence of the kingdom of heaven in the parable of the mustard seed and the inward invisible influence, especially in the hearts of individual Christians in the parable of the hidden leaven in the meal. He writes, the kingdom of heaven here means the same as in the last parable, Perhaps, however, intending to denote more properly the secret and hidden nature of piety in the soul. The other parable declared the fact that the gospel would greatly spread and that piety in the heart would greatly increase. This declares the way or mode in which it would be done. It is secret, silent, steady, pervading all the faculties of the soul and all the kingdoms of the world as leaven or yeast through, though hidden in the flower and though deposited only in one place works silently until all the mass is brought under its influence. So we see here is an emphasis shift from the outward observable to the secret inward work of the kingdom of God both in the world extending the gospel and in the hearts of kingdom citizens, the influence of grace working throughout. So what's the leaven? What does leaven mean here? Well, leaven most basically speaks of influence. Even as yeast ferments flour, 
causing it to rise. Often, but not always, the Bible speaks of leaven as evil. It's a symbol of evil, such it is in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. A little leaven leavens a whole lot. He's talking about one man's sin impacting a congregation there in Corinth. And of Matthew 16 and verse 6, Jesus speaks of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees as leaven. In the Old Testament, God's covenant people are generally prohibited from offering leavened bread with their sacrifices. Yet, the prohibition was not without exception. One sacrifice to God required the offering of leavened bread with the peace offerings for thanksgiving. You find that in Leviticus 7 and verse 3. Now, seeing leaven as a symbol of evil has led many commentators to view Jesus' parable of the leaven as teaching the spread of evil in the world in active opposition to the spread of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, I don't think that this interpretation is correct. Surely evil, like leaven, it spreads through the working of Satan and through the impact of evil men in the world. But Jesus seems to be speaking about the expansion of his kingdom, not Satan's kingdom, the advancement of good and not of evil. The symbol of leaven, like the use of other imagery, must be understood in its context. Not all words have the same meaning wherever they are used. For instance, Peter likens the devil to a lion in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, but John in Revelation refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 and verse 5. You see, context must determine the meaning of various words and expressions. And so I believe with the word leaven. So our Lord is not teaching here that there is a war of kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan, battling against his kingdom, each seeking dominance. This is certainly true and suggested in the parable of the wheat and the tares, but I do not believe that this is the teaching of this parable. The spreading influence of the leaven is parallel, you see, with the expanding size of the mustard seed, both referring to the expansion of God's gracious kingdom in the world. One more obviously and one more secretly. One by the parable of the mustard seed more obviously. One by the leaven more inwardly and secretly. Who's the woman here? Well, in the, in the previous parable, we had a, a working man. He was a farmer. He sows the seed. And here we have a working woman, a housewife. Can I use that word here? Both are busy about their ordinary vocational responsibilities. There's no hidden meaning here. A woman is named because baking was part of her ordinary domestic duties. All Jesus hears would have understood that. We ought not let culture prevent us from understanding that. Now, what about being hid in three pecks of meal until all was leavened? And I don't think there's any hidden meaning here either. Three pecks of meal is not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not body, soul, and spirit. 
No, the woman here is simply engaged in a large baking project. And this was a typical recipe for baking bread for a houseful. It has been suggested that Jesus took notice of his mother using that amount of flour when baking bread. That may be the case. But he was no stranger to that, obviously. The point is that the fermentation of the meal by the leaven pictures the gracious influence that pervades the kingdom of heaven in the world and especially its influence in kingdom citizens. So what's the spiritual fulfillment of the parable? We've seen the explanation of the symbols. What's its meaning? What what does it imply? What Jesus accomplishes in the advancement of his kingdom in the world, he accomplishes as a result of his grace at work in the spiritual transformation of sinners. The gospel works like leaven. It ferments in the soul. and It impacts every faculty of our being. In other words, God extends his kingdom in the world as he brings sinners under the saving influence of the gospel and he delivers us from one kingdom to another, from darkness and sin to light in Christ, through death to life, through redemption that's found only in Jesus. And so Paul teaches, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, sins that once characterized and dominated us. The leaven of evil, as it were, is displaced by the leaven of grace. Those sins that once characterized and dominated and defined us before Christ no longer do so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Paul speaks of this glorious truth using other kind of language. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Are you one of these people, Paul is asking? Are these sins, do these sins characterize you? But notice what he says. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You're not what you once were, what you are now. You are by the grace of God. These things are past. You're not like that any longer. You see, the grace of Christ exerts a powerful, life-changing impact upon all the citizens of the kingdom. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But such were some of God promises to perfect his gracious renovation that he's begun in all of his kingdom citizens, that the leaven will do its work. Philippians 1 and verse 6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We might say that the seed here, the mustard seed in us will grow and it will, it will spread its branches out throughout our lives. Particularly the, the leaven will take over. It will ferment. It will take over every part of our, our being. And as new men in Christ, we are not to rest until the whole of our being is brought into moral conformity to the image of our Lord. So we are to pray, Paul says, writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May the leaven do its work throughout you completely, he's saying. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is no prayer questioning whether it's going to happen. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. He'll complete what he's begun. Now, what does that say to us by way of a couple of concluding applications? Notice, first of all, from the promise of the advancement of the kingdom of grace in the world. Brethren, never despise the day of small things. Jesus wasn't downcast when he saw that he had only a handful of disciples. Few were on the narrow road that leads to life. Many were on the wide road that leads to destruction. He had just a handful of disciples after three plus years of ministry. He had the 12 and he had the 120 in the upper room later. Brethren, let us not despise the day of small things. Our Lord didn't. He foresaw his kingdom one day filling the earth. Secondly, ardently labor to see larger things. Like the apostles and faithful Christians throughout the centuries, we need to boldly and prayerfully use all, all the means that God has given us to expand his kingdom through our witness. And some of you are doing that. I'm very encouraged when I hear about you witnessing it. Sometimes with with people that are slurring you, slandering you, calling you names, things that you wouldn't repeat in polite company, but you're sowing the seed. You're seeking to inject leaven. God has leavened you with his grace to influence your world for Christ. Thirdly, be assured that God's kingdom will finally triumph over evil, this evil and unbelieving world. Brethren, we know the end of the story is written for us in our Bibles. We're, we're reading about the great conflagration that's going to come at the end when all of God's people will be saved and all of the wicked will be put down. We're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom will come and his will will be done. Evil will not ultimately triumph. It'll have its day, but its day, the sun will set upon it. And night will come forever for those who oppose the kingdom of God. 
Indeed, that's the great goal of the Great Commission, is it not? To take the word of the kingdom to all mankind. Fourthly, let all citizens in God's kingdom seek formal association with others in local churches. Indeed, that, that's part of the message of the mustard seed and the tree and the birds that nest in the branches. The goal of the Great Commission, you see, isn't just the merely making of disciples and baptizing them, but it's organizing them into societies called local churches where they can be taught everything that Christ has commanded. And then observe that God's kingdom grows by the redemption of sinners, not by the redemption of culture. It's not through theonomy. It's not, it's not by woke Christianity. It's not by Christianizing the entertainment industry. It's by making disciples and they impact the culture. We, to, to, try to, to try to redeem the culture is to put the cart before the horse. We need to be redeemed. We need to go out and, and influence others. You don't redeem institutions, you redeem sinners. And when they're redeemed, they will impact the world around them. The hymn writer puts it this way, not with swords loud clashing, nor rolling, or nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy. The heavenly kingdom comes. It's living our Christianity before a watching world that will impact them for good, spreading the mustard seed, advancing the fermenting leaven in culture. Secondly, from the promise of the advancement of the kingdom of grace in the heart, first of all, never despise your present state of grace. You are what you are by the grace of God, but you're not what you will one day be by further the work of grace in your heart. Never despise your present state of grace. Don't be content with it, but ardently seek to grow in grace. Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of his second epistle, he talks about how this is to be done. He tells us that we are to make our calling and election sure. And for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Continue to grow in the grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have new vistas to attain as the leaven of the gospel works in your heart and life. Don't be satisfied with your present attainments in grace. Secondly, permit no aspect of your life to be off limits to the working of sanctifying grace. In other words, grant asylum to no sin. If you look at your your Christian life is a house. Don't have any room or any closet that you keep things from Christ. You need to go and purge the whole house 
of the bad leaven that the good leaven of grace may take over and control it. You see, grace begun continues to conquer sin in true Christians. Mortify all sin. Like Samuel, hack Agag to pieces. Accept no truce with any sin, no matter how powerful, how habitual, how fashionable in this world. The word is don't coddle, crucify. Thirdly, if you would grow in grace, faithfully use the means that God has provided, and specifically he's speaking here about the word of God, the seed, the, the, the meal that receives the leaven. What does Peter say? First Peter 2 and verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Feed greedily upon gospel seed if you would grow in grace. Brethren, we need the leavening influence of the word of the kingdom to work its way into every nook and cranny of our hearts so that it will positively impact every aspect of our lives. How many professing Christians live worldly compromised lives because they neglect regular nourishment from the word of God? How many profess a desire to be more like Christ but neglect the means that he has appointed to that end? We're to feed upon the inscripturated word if we want to grow in conformity to him who is the living word. If we would grow in conformity to the incarnate word, we must feed regularly upon the inscripturated word. Brethren, accept no substitutes. There's all kinds of good devotionals out there, and I wouldn't discourage you from reading them. But your primary intake should be the word of God. Fourthly, if you would grow in grace, seek out close, mutually nurturing relationships with godly Christians. Birds of a feather, what do they do? They, they flock together like birds that nest with one another in the mustard tree. God never intended you to go to heaven alone. Christ came, he died for the church. He died for individuals, yes, but he died for the body. We're to go to heaven as a body. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so when one man sharpens another. The psalmist says in Psalm 101 and verse 6, my eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Seek out intimate godly relationships with other Christians, especially those that you look up to. We need mentors, don't we? We need the exhortations and encouragements, the example, the admonitions, the warnings of other kingdom citizens to help us toward heaven. God never intended that we make our way to glory on our own. And finally, cry to God to continually sanctify you. 
That is his will. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, Paul teaches. And only Christ can accomplish this. He must continue and perfect that good work that he's begun within us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Not just your spirit, not just your soul, not just the inner man, but the outer man, that it may be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, that's all that I have for you this morning, but... Certainly there's much food for thought here, is there not? As we consider the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, may God write these things upon our hearts. May there be a living work of grace going on in us as we come to understand and plead for help to learn practically what it means to be kingdom citizens. Let's pray together. Lord God, I would pray that things that were stumblingly and stammeringly said, that you would write these things upon our hearts. Help us to understand the truth of your word. Help us to desire to not be Christians in name only, but to have the work of grace done in our hearts that we would prove to be genuine Christians at the end of the day. Indeed, open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. Grant us grace to enter into it. Cause Jesus to go before us as our Savior and as our example. Might we run in the, the, the path that he has marked out for us. Lord, hear us as, as we pray these things. Continue to expand the influence of your gospel in our hearts. May the fermentation of it make us more and more like the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Indeed, might we be, as it were, happy birds nesting in the branches of your expanding kingdom, being encouraged and encouraging one another in Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.